With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams. Nothing but the truth. It's March 19, 2015. And I'm going to have to do a redo of part four of Christian Doctrine and Theology. Uh, because uh, the audio was terrible, and because I screwed up. Stupid is what stupid does, I guess. And uh, I uh, took out the antenna to the headphones, and uh, of course, I think you could hear was background noise and uh, what was going on in the house and all that. So, deleted that, start over again. My apologies to all those who showed up and then <laughs> left promptly. Uh, that is my fault. I take little responsibility. Can't blame the Jesuits for this one. This is all Mike Adams' fault. So, anyways, well, we'll go back to uh, an article that uh, we discovered from Yahoo.com, the headlines, and this is from uh, Think Progress. And I'm not supporting the website per se, but this article is where it's from. It's from Jack Jenkins. And the article is Catholic Cathedral installs water system to, that drenches homeless people to keep them away. And Korea, uh, we're talking about the granddaddy of them all, Colts who says that they're a Christian and they follow the teachings of Christ, and yet they do something like this, like all the other things that they do. The hypocrisy is profound. So, anyways, we'll read this article. Uh, St. Mary's Cathedral, the flagship church of the Archdiocese of San Francisco and home worship community of embattled Archbishop Salvatore Cordelone, Cordelone, something like that, whatever, is under fire for installing a water system that drenches homeless people to keep them from sleeping under the sanctuary steps. According to San Francisco's news station, KCBS, the system was placed above four doors surrounding the cathedral that attract homeless people at night. They observed that beginning just before sunset, water descended from, for about 75 seconds from a sprinkler above each door every 30 to 60 minutes, covering the uh, alcoves below in water. KCBS reported seeing it douse homeless people and their belongings. A homeless man named Robert told KCBS that being drenched in water can have dire consequences out on the streets. We are going to be wet all night, is the quote. 
so hypothermia, cold, and other, all that other stuff could set in. Keeping the church clean, but it could make people sick, he said. And then they have a video of the system. Archdiocese released a statement Wednesday afternoon addressing the controversy, saying that the water mechanisms was installed two years ago and that, quote, people who were regularly sleeping in those doorways were informed in advance that the sprinklers were being installed. It is unclear whether the church officials intended to regularly inform other homeless people who slept there. And there's another quote from the Archdiocese, it looks like. We are sorry that our intentions have been misunderstood and recognize that the method used was ill-conceived. Right. Wink, wink, wink. Not only do they spray homeless people with water, but then they lie about it. Uh, the statement reads, it actually has had a, an opposite effect from what it was intended to do. For this, we are very sorry. So, of course, you know, the intention was to drive away the homeless people, but instead it brought the news channel. The city of San Francisco has taken steps to provide for its homeless population over the past decade, but the numbers haven't changed much since 2005. The city counted 6,436 homeless people in 2014, 1,977 of whom were chronically homeless. This included 914 unaccompanied children and the youth, and an estimated 2,200 public school students lacking permanent homes in the city. The church's water system stands in stark contrast to words and actions of Pope Francis, who has been a stalwart defender of the poor assuming, since assuming the papacy in 2013. Reports abound of the pontiff seeking out, sneaking out of the Vatican at night to serve the homeless. And he also instituted several reforms in the Vatican to care for the needy. <clears throat> he gives away sleeping bags to the poor people in the street to celebrate his birthday, offers the homeless free shaves and haircuts, and recently announced plans to install showers in St. Peter's Square to serve Rome's less fortunate. To love God and neighbor uh, is not something abstract, but it's profoundly concrete. Um, it means seeing that every person and face of the Lord to be served, to serve him concretely. You are, dear brothers and sisters, in the face of Jesus, Pope said May 13th, May 2013, excuse me, while speaking to residents of Donna di Maria, a homeless shelter in Rome. The Archdiocese vowed to remove the system by the end of the day on Wednesday, and has noted that it may be, it may have been operating without a permit which would violate San Francisco's water use laws. Uh, Catholic Charities of San Francisco, which runs two homeless shelters, and the city told of Think Progress they support the Archdiocese's decision to disconnect the sprinklers. Revelation 
um, comes at a difficult time for the Saint, uh, San Francisco Archbishop Cordell Leon. Leon, I don't know how you pronounce it. He is already under fire from local Catholics for inserting a moral clause into the local parishional school staff handbook that would allow church officials to fire teachers who visibly violate certain Catholic teachings, such as being gay. Supporters of uh, Cordelones rushed to his defense on Wednesday, pointing to his record of helping the homeless. But others, such as prominent Catholic journalist David Gibson, argue that the Archbishop's history does not in any way excuse the sprinkler system. Uh, fake progress reached out to the, ca- the Cardinal and Archbi- Archdiocese for comment, but our calls were not returned. Imagine that. So once again, a great example of the hypocrisy that is called Roman Catholicism. And here we have an institution, the wealthiest in the world, that's taken over this country and hit solution in San Francisco to deal with the poor was to install sprinkler systems to run them away instead of doing something about the homeless and the poor and the needy. Now we've got an article here from David Nikeo, uh from End Time Bible Prophecy from his Facebook page. And... Uh, this goes in line with the many times we've been talking about Daniel's 70th week and how it has nothing to do with our time period. The 70th week of Daniel prophecy in Daniel 9 declares that after the 69th week, Messiah the Prince would appear and confirm a covenant to the Jews. Uh, Malachi, uh, Malachi was the last prophet before Messiah appeared. He foretold that Christ, the messenger of the covenant, is coming. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, Jesus Christ, the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, and whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, saith the Lord of hosts. How can any Christian proclaim that the covenant mentioned in Daniel 9.27 is an end-time antichrist peace agreement with Israel. How can any Christian... Okay, yeah. The Word of God is clearly telling us that it was the everlasting covenant of Christ, which was offered to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. There are many verses that point to Jesus confirming the covenant during his ministry which took place during the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. He and he, Jesus, said to them, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which I shed for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26:28. In these words we find four things which agree with the prophecy of Daniel 9:27. One, who was confirmed was to confirm the covenant, Jesus the Messiah, the covenant itself, that which confirmed the covenant, the blood of Christ, those who receive the benefits of the covenant, the many who believe in him as their Messiah. These words correspond perfectly with those of the prophecy. 
ye shall confirm the covenant with many. Isaiah 49.8 told that the Messiah would be a covenant to his people. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in day of salvation have I helped thee, and I preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritage. So, what covenant needed to be confirmed? Jesus co-authored the Abrahamic covenant to redeem Abram's spiritual seed, those of all races who believe in God by faith. Hebrew 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author, originator, and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks before speaks better things than that of Abel. Hebrew thirteen twenty. Now may God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Galatians three seventeen confirms this. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. In Hebrews 9, 15-17, the covenant delivered to Abraham is identified as the new covenant or eternal covenant that Christ confirmed by the shedding of his blood. And for this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For the testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. It's telling us that the Abrahamic covenant could not be confirmed or ratified until one who made it died. In Hebrews 9.28 states that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, which is a perfect match of Daniel 9. Uh, 24 through 27, Jesus' sacrificial offering covered all of the sins that are listed in Daniel 9, 24, his sacrifice made to save many. Christ, the co-author of the eternal covenant, confirmed it by his sacrificial death. Hebrews 17, uh, 7, 22 tells us, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant. The word surety means to pledge, or a bondsman. When Jesus co-created the Abrahamic covenant, he agreed to be the surety, the blood sacrifice, that would confirm the covenant. Hebrews 8.6 tells us, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator 
of a better covenant, which was established upon a better promise, better promises. His office of priesthood is more excellent than the Levitical because the covenant is better and established on better promises. The old covenant referred to earthly things, the new covenant to heavenly. God's prophets point to Jesus' covenant, which covers their sins. Jeremiah 31, 30-34 foretold the time when Jesus would offer a new covenant to the house of Israel and with the house of Jadah. In Hebrews 8, verses 8-10, through 10, Paul confirmed that this was, the fulfilled, this was fulfilled by Jesus. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, saith the Lord, saith the Lord. Uh, just, that was startling. Okay, saith the Lord. For this is a new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, and I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Christ, by whom the covenant was made and ratified, is called the angel messenger of the covenant because he reconciles us to, to his Father. I don't know about the angel part, but, but again, I'm, I guess... Uh, Malachi 3.1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Shortly after Jesus was baptized and anointed, he proclaimed that he was the promised Messiah when he read from the book of Isaiah in the temple before the Jews. And Ezekiel 37, 26-27 confirms that it was Jesus who cut an everlasting covenant that established peace between God and man. He and he set up a spiritual temple that can never be abolished, which is made up of his people. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus, the Messiah, was the mediator, the messenger, the ratifier of the covenant of grace, which was confirmed with many, both Jews and Gentiles, so that the promise made at all nations and Abraham would be fulfilled. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Friends, the Bible is full of passages that proclaim the covenant of our Messiah. Not one verse speaks about an Antichrist making a covenant. The context of Daniel 9 is the promise of the coming Messiah. It has nothing to do with the end times or the Antichrist. The Antichrist Jesuits of Rome created these deceptions to defer blame away from the Roman Catholic Church, which 
the Protestant reformers rightly identified as the Antichrist beast of Revelation, the little horn of Daniel in the office of the papacy, the son of perdition. Wake up, church, the enemy has deceived you. And you can read more about this on ChristianityBelief.org in the 70th week of Daniel's Covenant. And so, there we go. Let's see what this is all about. But interrupt me so. Oh, it's about the Kindle stuff. Okay. So let's get out of there. So we're going to get back to doing the reading that I did last show. Uh, once again, I apologize for the audio. The audio was horrendous. Those who tried to join in, my apologies. I'm deeply sorry. Sorry, I screwed up. Can't blame the Jesuits on that one. Uh, I unplugged the antenna to the headset. And all you end up hearing was a bunch of noise, and the audio was terrible. So, my bad. So now I have to read all this stuff again. So maybe there's a reason for it, besides my stupidity. Well, we'll find out. Now we're reading from uh, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, C A R M. And uh, do I agree with everything that Matt says? Not particularly. Uh, that he is, uh, uh, what is he? Calvinist in his approach. But, you know what, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a good understanding of the basics of Christianity. And as we will learn in this study, whether you're a Calvinist or Armenian, there actually, it actually is a secondary issue that is not determinant of salvation. So... And I think that we certainly can fellowship with people who differ in that approach. It is okay. And for those that are really extreme and say no one way or the other, you're the ones that have a problem. <laughs> because at this point you realize, at least I do, that there are many men who believe in Jesus Christ, that believe in the basic gospels, but they have differences in whether there's predestination or free will. And they have variances in between. And for anybody to shut one off, and keep one quiet because of one direction or the other is not very Christ-like. And there's another fine example of how man, in their arrogance, through their belief in their own knowledge, think that they know better than anybody else about what's going on, especially when it comes to the Word of God. So be careful, once again. This is what Matt has to say. He says, following this proposed chart that offers a layout of biblical orthodoxy, it is designed to help categorize various doctrines into levels of importance. I admit that some of these are debatable, and I do not claim absolute correctness at all points, only the essentials. It is an attempt to develop an understanding based on what Scripture actually says rather than what a lot of people think it declares is essential. This chart is a suggestion which I hope will aid people in discerning what is essential from what is not essential. I divide Christian theology into two categories, primary and secondary essentials. Primary essentials are doctrines the scriptures explicitly declare as essential. But with the secondary essentials, the scripture does not make such statements. 
The secondary essentials are derived from the primary essentials and properly defined orthodoxy. And then it has this uh, little chart here, and then it has religious groups, then importance, and then subject. And importance, primary essentials. The statement specifically in Scripture that these cannot be denied and still be a Christian. They deal with the nature of God, the atonement, its methods of salvation applied to the behavior, or the believer, excuse me. Denial of any primary essential constitutes lack of regeneration, lack of salvation. Note regeneration means the believer is indwelt by God, changed and enabled to understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.15. Then it has these subjects, and there's five of them in this first category. Uh, number one, Jesus is both God and man. Number two, Jesus rose from the dead physically. Number three, salvation is by grace through faith. Number four, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. And number five, there is only one God. And then it go back to the religious groups, groups denying these. And then they got the Christadolphians, uh, uh, Christadolphianism. Uh, and then they deny number one and three. Number one, of course, would be Jesus, both God and man, and number three, salvation by grace through faith. Then they got the Christian science. They deny one, two, and three. So Jesus, they deny that Jesus is God and man, and they deny that Jesus rose from the dead physically, and they deny the salvation by grace through faith. And then Islam denies one, two, three, and four, and so, but of course they believe in the one God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses deny one, two, and three. Once again, they deny that Jesus is both God and man. Two, that Jesus rose from the dead physically. And three, salvation is by grace through faith. Mormons deny one, two, three, excuse me, three, four, five. So they deny salvation by grace through faith. That's for sure. Workspace completely. And uh, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to Scripture. And they deny that there's only one God. Roman Catholicism denies number three salvation by Christ through salvation by grace through faith. Comment denial of any of these above doctrines, as stated in Scripture, constitutes being non-Christian. Then it says secondary essentials, not stated in Scripture as essential, but are derivatively essential since they deal with accurately describing the true God, and they are based in part. On primary essentials, denial strongly suggests lack of regeneration. So we got this. Number six, God exists as a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Seven, God was born of the Virgin Mary, nature of incarnation. And eight, Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Then we look at the groups denying these. We got the uh, Christadolphianism, Christadolphianism, I can't say it, Christadolphianism. They deny number six, which uh, the Trinity of uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Islam denies number six and eight, so they deny the Trinity and that Jesus is the way, only way to God the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses deny number six, the Trinity. Mormons deny number six. Oneness Pentecostal denies number six. Comment. God is a trinity, and though a person may not understand and initially affirm the trinity doctrine upon regeneration, he will eventually come to accept it since it is a biblical truth 
Revelation describing the true God. Jesus was born of a virgin, which is essential when defending the two natures of Jesus, divine and human. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, then his uh, patronage would be in doubt as well as his divine nature. Without divine nature, Jesus would not be able to atone for the sins of the world. Then and now we're going to deal with non-essentials. There's the first one is primary non-essentials. Denying these can bring one's salvation into question since the, re the regenerate seeks to live according to God's word. Violating does not automatically mean the person is not saved since Christians fall into various sins. However, abiding in sins with unrepentance would be evidence that the person is not regenerated. Then uh, we've got these... these um, uh, 9 through 13 points. Um, what is that called? I said called points. It's not what it's points. It's called subject. So the subjects. Moral integrity, ex uh, fidelity in marriage, heterosexual relationships, uh, loving is condemnation of homosexuality, inherency of the Bible, baptism is not necessary for salvation. Most groups affirm moral integrity, marriage, and fidelity, inherence, etc. Mormons deny 12. Yeah, they do deny the inherency of the Bible. Islam denies 12 and 13. Uh, and OCOC uh, denies 13, which is baptism is not necessary for salvation. Comma, the fruits of the indwelling Spirit of God is agreement in word and deed with the scriptures. Primary non-essentials are those teaching that the Bible does not declare as essential to salvation. However, to confirm otherwise is evidence of lack of regeneration since they are the fruits of the regenerated mind and heart. Then secondary non-essentials. Any of them can be denied or affirmed, and regeneration is not in question. And this is uh, denominations, divisions. Denominational differences often result due to these issues. So now we're dealing with secondary non-essentials. Uh, predestination, election, and limited atonement on free will. So here we go with the predestination slash free will argument, uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And in the day is a secondary non-essential. Communion every week, monthly, or quarterly, etc., is a so the sacrament, the communion, and all that is a, non, a secondary non-essential doctrine for salvation. Uh, number sixteen, Saturday versus Sunday worship, once again, is a secondary non-essential practice or tradition at this point. So, for those who want to keep the Sabbath. It is not a problem in the sense that it's not going to, you know, it's not going to save you. It's, it's a secondary, non-essential doctrine, so, or belief, uh, but it could condemn you, especially if you feel that it is necessary for salvation. Then you're under the law again, and you're denying what Jesus Christ did for you. So, as you and I, if we, we go through our journey as being followers of Christ, if you choose to keep the Sabbath, and I don't, we should not judge each other on that. 
uh, with the understanding that there, it's not salvific. Is it a good idea to set aside a day a week to rest in the Lord and to focus on Him and to focus on all that is good about God and to read the Scripture? Absolutely. Uh, but will it save you? No. What saves you is you're saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. It's your faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God that saves you because of you believing in Jesus Christ that saves you. And then if, if you make your decision one way or the other about the Sabbath, that's great. But to think in any way, shape, or form that you're more of a follower of Christ because of it, you've missed the boat. And that's when you look at the New Testament. It neither denies nor supports the argument of keeping the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus never thought it was important. Uh, if that's clear, I mean, he, he did miracles and works on the Sabbath. And he was not someone who was pushing that. And if you look at the New Testament as a whole, it doesn't. There's no word that says you have to keep the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath. He's the new covenant. He's our Sabbath. And, you know, we rest with him every day. That's the attempt. That's the, that's the purpose. That's what we want to do, isn't it, as followers of Christ? So judging each other based on whether it's a Saturday or Sunday worship is a bogus argument. Even looking at Sunday, we look at the Roman Catholic Church and its hierarchy, the papacy, and it's declaring that it's its mark of authority. No, it's not. They say it is, but that in itself is a bogus argument. Because if we, the majority, whether Christian or not, say, no, it's not, it's not. And there's nothing they can do about it. They can spend a lot of time killing a bunch of us. It gets a point where it's a futile, and they realize that. Will they try to do it one more time? Yeah, probably. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe they finally learned the lesson that it's a waste of time. Only time will tell. But one thing is for certain, the day of the week is not that important. God is bigger than the day of the week. And if you want to worship on Saturday, then go ahead. If you want to worship on Saturday, Sunday, go ahead. If you want to do it Wednesday, you should have that right. But it won't save you what day of the week you worship God. It just won't. And as far as keeping the Sabbath, if you're going to be really legalistic about it, then you need to keep it uh, the way it was supposed to be intended. Now, I recognize in the old Mosaic Law, that it is a centerpiece of the Mosaic Law, the Sabbath day. But we are no longer under the Mosaic Law. We're under a new covenant, a gloriously more wonderful, truer, more beautiful covenant, and that is in Jesus Christ. He's our new Sabbath. And so we'll move on from that. But once again, the Saturday-Sunday issue is a secondary, non-essential. It's a bogus argument. And that, it once again, allows men to get trapped in legalism and lose focus of the true essence and importance of who Jesus Christ is, what he did for us. And if you take it to a point uh, of where the day of the week somehow makes you a follower of Christ, you have missed God's, Christ's teachings altogether. And it's time to go back and read the Bible, I say. And then another secondary, non-essential, is the pre-mid-post-trib rapture. 
And I agree with you. Outside of the fact that this whole rapture thing and the seven-day year tribulation is a Jesuit creation itself, and people should know about that, and it should be exposed because it's a design to keep the eye, our eye off the true biblical historical Antichrist, the papacy. Um, and with all the false expectations along it, uh, in the end of the day, if a person believes in that, it is, it is a secondary non-essential. There are many people who are saved who believe in the pre, mid, or post-trip rapture thing. And, of course, you know, I'm more in line of what would be the post-trip rapture, which is the day of you know, the wrath of God when he comes, uh, in the second coming, and that's when there will be this quote-unquote rapture, which is not in the Bible, but neither is Trinity. These words don't necessarily don't have meaning just because they're not in the Bible. Um, but the thing is, is this whole concept uh, uh, that's been promoted, we have to understand why, uh, how it's been manipulated, and how it's been distorted. So, But it is certain that there are many people who will say they will believe in the pre-mid-trip rapture. At number eight, the pre-millennialism, the amillennialism, post-millennialism, uh, partial petrorism. Uh, and um, you know that's another issue too. I, I, I there we as the body of Christ are really confused on that issue, and I agree with them at this point that that is a secondary, non-essential issue for our salvation. And thank goodness, because if we don't, just because you know, it doesn't mean you're not saved if you don't understand everything that's in Revelation or in the Bible. Nobody does have 100% understanding, especially in the historical context of things. The most important message throughout the whole Bible is, of course, Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did for us, who he is now, who he always was. That's the more important issue. Number 19, the continuation or succession of the charismatic gifts. That's another non-essential secondary non-essential doctrine or uh, subject, uh, baptism for adults and infants. And this is a kind of a controversial one. Uh, A lot of people feel you need to be baptized in order to be saved. But then again, if you look at the thief on the cross when he was with Christ, and obviously the thief on the cross had no opportunity to be baptized, and yet Jesus said, was it today you will be with me in heaven or in paradise, whatever it is. So, you know, it obviously is an outward expression of regeneration that you uh, are. The Spirit of God is working with you. You wanted to go through this rite or ritual tradition of baptism. God says to do that. But there are obviously instances in, in the Bible itself uh, where you can be saved and not be baptized. Um, musical instruments in the church, which is another non-essential secondary, secondary non-essential. Um, um, I, I, uh, the only thing I would say is that a lot of the new modern music that, that disturbs me, in my own opinion, is that it's nothing but witchcraft at this point. I understand what it is. They're just uh, chanting and singing their little uh, repetitive songs, and in the end, it's, it's, it certainly works you up emotionally for spiritual 
contemplative prayer and, and spiritual formation, but it's uh, it's not really edifying you in the Word of God. So that's my opinion about it. If you feel differently, you certainly have a right to. Will it make a difference whether you're saved or not because of the type of music you heard? Uh, thank goodness that's not the issue. <laughs> that's all i got to say. Especially if you care about others and uh, you want everyone, you know, or God's children to be saved. Uh, if music's the criteria, then we're really in big trouble. Um, comments. The subjects and secondary non-essentials are area, whether affirmed or denied, have no bearing on the status of a, of a person before God. They are opinions, various positions held. Unfortunately, it is these non-essentials that many denominational differences result. And many people end up not fellowshipping with you because of it. And it just shows you how narrow-minded and wrong-thinking people get when they get so legalistic and absolute about things, and they lose focus. Uh, this is why it's so important to stay focused on Jesus Christ. This is where I'm starting to realize what he did for us, who he really is. And if we spend too much time on these non-essential, secondary non-essentials, we will... It's, it's, it's almost like we end up not loving God and loving our neighbors. And we become self-righteous over petty things. So. Uh, liberal interpretation problems, examples of bad biblical interpretation, Christian heresy. These do not contradict the essentials, but do contradict non-essential teachings. Universalism. Uh, and it says here, C, can a Christian be universalist? Uh, open theism, uh, annihilationism, possession uh, of Christians by demons. Christians are to be healthy and wealthy by the fact of being Christians. Women pastors and elders comment, affirming the doctrines in this gray section are signs of significant lack of understanding of biblical theology. Nevertheless, believing them does not negate salvation. <clears throat> That's a good point. So some stuff to look in there. Can a Christian be a universalist? So this is what he says. It is possible for a Christian. It says, is it possible for a Christian to be universalist? Some say no, others say yes. My position is that it is impossible for a Christian to be a universalist. Note, I said it, it is it is possible. However, to be clear, I believe universalism to be a heresy, and I would never say all universalists are Christians. And then there's different kinds of universalism. So let's look at that, since we deal a lot with uh, the Roman Catholic Church and this whole ecumenical movement. Let's see what this man has to say. Not all forms of universalism are the same, though all are in error. Christian universalism teaches that Jesus is the only way and that all will be saved 
and that salvation occurs quickly after death for those who have not after death for those who have not become Christian in this life. This fear erringly states that salvation can occur after dying. I find nothing in the scriptures that require believing in eternal damnation in order to be true Christians. And it is only for this reason that I say that Christian universalism does not make one unsaved. A variation of the Christian universalism teaches that those who are not Christians in this life will convert to Christianity in the afterlife after suffering various degrees of punishment. And of course that would be Roman Catholicism and Mormonism. This is well understood outside the Christian orthodoxy regarding doctrine of salvation since it implies that deliverance from God's wrath is accomplished for one's work of suffering is completed after one's work of suffering is completed. This view is not compatible with Christian faith and would demonstrate a person is not saved who holds to it. Unitarian Universalism teaches that everyone of all faiths will be saved and that Jesus is not the only means of salvation. This, of course, violates essential doctrines of the Christian faith and cannot be considered a viable option at all. Ignorance. Nevertheless, Let's say that there is a man who was not a Christian who believes that everyone will be saved. This man is on his deathbed in the hospital and is visited by a hospital chaplain. The chaplain gives him the gospel about Jesus being God in the flesh, dying for our sins and rising from the dead, the need for repentance of, from sins and trusting in Christ, etc. The man honestly receives Christ and then dies shortly thereafter. Yet he never repented of the errors of of universalism. Is he saved or should we say that even though he trusted Jesus as a savior, believed Jesus is God in the flesh, and that Christ died for his sins and rose from the dead, and the man fully received Christ, uh, but because he also believed everyone will be saved, he is then going to hell. Would anyone condemn a person to eternity fire for simply believing that everyone will be saved? I can't, I can't see that being the case. And of course, let me go back to the man, you know, the thief on the cross. Uh, there are essentials to Christian faith. I have developed the doctrine grid, which uh, we will go back to. And... Yeah, we'll go back to that, so... And uh, actually, we're done with that, so maybe we can go back to this. We'll just read this since it's going along with that. You mentioned Dr. Grid. Though I consider your professionalism to be a false belief. Wait a minute. I developed a doctrine grid where I have tried to arrange essentials, non essential doctrines, into a central, understandable system. Essential doctrines are essential because the Bible says they are. Let me give you two examples. In John 8:24, Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is an essential doctrine because it has a penalty of damnation for denying it. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 15:14 says that if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. 
Here, too, we see the essential doctrine because there is a condition of condemnation un, upon its denial. So, too, with other essentials, justification by faith, monotheism, and the gospel, that the scriptures declare to be essential. And then it says, see my doctrine great again, which we just read earlier. Though I consider universalism to be a faith belief, a false belief, excuse me, it cannot automatically pronounce condemnation upon a person who acknowledges the essentials of the Christian faith and also affirms universal salvation. I do not believe, I, I don't because I don't see the scriptures doing it. Would I consider someone who holds to both the essentials and universalisms to be inconsistent and confused? Absolutely. Should they repent? Yes. Does it mean he is unsaved? I can't, I can't say it does. People can be saved in various degrees of theological error. There are, regen there are regenerated people who do not understand predestination, and of course, he is one of those who believes in that because he's a Calvinist. Um, but many of us, you know, question how, especially the extreme predestination thing. Of, is it, but you know what? Once again, don't accept election, don't understand federal leadership, headship, and are clueless about imputation, Christ's eternal priesthood and covenant, etc. Yet they are regenerated. They simply haven't learned those doctrinal truths yet. They are condemned for not rightly they are condemned for not rightly understanding these very important biblical teachings. No, because the ones I just listed in the paragraph are not declared by the Bible to be essential doctrines of salvation. Now, am I saying that all universalists can be Christian? Not at all. Do I defend universalism? No. Do I think that universalism is a serious problem that undermines the gospel? Yes, uh, I do. But I can see scenarios where the universalist can be a Christian. Deathbed conversions, ignorance due to a lack of proper teaching, etc. And I believe that it's possible to be saved in confusion and error, including the confusion and error of universalism. I don't see how believing that all will be saved automatically disqualifies a person from being saved because I don't see the scripture doing it. Issues to consider. There are issues and non-essentials, excuse me, there are essentials and non-essential doctrines. Uh, denial of essential negates salvation. Denial of non-essential does not. It is If a professing Christian also believes in universalism, means that he is not saved, then it must mean that that person has denied the essential doctrines. Where, then, are the scriptures that state beliefs of eternal damnation is within the essentials of the Christian faith? If believing in universalism automatically disqualifies a person from being a Christian, then please specify the logic with the scripture used to make such a pronouncement. If you say it is because they deny the eternal punishment of God, then please demonstrate how such denial means a person's automatically not saved. I'm not trying to defend universalism. I believe it is wrong and against Scripture, 
as are other errors that do not that, that do not damn. But I cannot state in good consciousness, according to what I see in God's Word, that if a person confesses the basics of Christianity, faith, Trinity, deity of uh, deity of Christ, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, justification by faith alone in Christ, etc., and also believes that all will be saved, that it, it automatically means the person is not a Christian. And I agree with you. A lot of times we get really too harsh on ourselves, and that's probably the reason why, you know, another example of why, quote-unquote, the Reformation didn't go all the way, it had nothing to do with the Sabbath, it has the fact that we can't agree on the basics, and uh, we behave like proper Christians, so... Okay, Doctor, what is the Gospel? And I'm going to take a little pause. It's going to be silence. I'm going to mute. But I'll be back in a minute or two. So I apologize for the pause. More audio problems. Of course, no one's here anyway, so it shouldn't be a problem. Um, once again, I apologize to the people that were here earlier uh, and endured that nonsense and noise. Um, what can I do except redo this? So Actually, I'm glad I'm redoing it because of the... This, uh, the second half of the show was uh, a debate on Calvinism, and I think that I was probably going down the wrong direction anyways. Uh, that's for another show, another time. And that was uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And, you know, it's an important issue to discuss and learn about, but it's not a Salvatic issue. And as we learned earlier, it's one of the secondary non-essentials. So if you're a Calvinist or you're a, uh Arminianist, it's not going to make a difference in your salvation. It's a petty argument, and in the, the day that uh, there's two, at least two camps, if not more, and I guess at this point, after thousands plus years of arguing about it, uh, debating it, and not coming to a common consensus, means it's probably not that important in the end of the day how you view it. Um, so. Or may you know, or maybe we're just you know whatever. Anyways, I'm gonna mute this. Be back in a couple minutes.
apologize for the long delay. And uh, now we'll get back to do some more What is the Gospel? The Gospel is the, is the singularly most important communication of God to man. In Jesus, who is God the Son, we have the revelation of God's love and sacrifice that saves us from God's righteous judgment upon sinners. If you are not a Christian and want to know how to be forgiven of your sins, follow Christ and are just curious to know what Christian's gospel is, then this is for you. The Bible tells us what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now, I make known to your brethren the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, and by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, that he was raised the third day, on the third day according to the scriptures. The Bible says that we are all sinners, Romans 3.23. This means that we have all offended God and have all broken his law. Therefore, we are guilty of, of having sinned. Because of this, we are separated from God. Isaiah 59.2 Are dead in our sins. Romans 6.23, Ephesians 2.3 Cannot please God. Romans 3.10.11 uh, And will suffer damnation. Second Thessalonians 2.9 The only way to escape the judgment is by receiving Christ by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. John 14.6, Acts 4.12, 1 Peter 2.24. Since we are sinners and are incapable of removing the guilt of our uh, sinfulness through our own efforts, Galatians 2.21 says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Jesus died needlessly. The law is the do's and don'ts of moral behavior. In other words, we cannot become righteous by what we do. Why? Because we are dead in our sins, Ephesians 2.3. This means that since we cannot remove our sins, God must do it. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, John 1.1 1, 1 and 14, John 8.58 and Colossians 2.9, bore our sins in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24. He died in our place. He paid the penalty for breaking the law that should have fallen upon us. He satisfied the law of God the Father by dying on the cross. It is only through Jesus that we escape the penalties of God, will, uh, that, the penalty that God will execute upon all who have broken his holy and perfect law. Do you want to be saved from they saved from the righteous judgment of God? If so, if you want to become a Christian and follow God, then you must realize that you have sinned against God and are under his judgment. You must look to Jesus, who died on the cross, and trust that he did it 
and trust what he did in order for you to be forgiven of your sentence and be saved from the judgment of God. This is accomplished by faith alone in what Jesus has done. You cannot add any human works to what Jesus has done. Count the cost. Jesus said, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Uh, Luke 14:28. Jesus tells us to count the cost. The cost of becoming a Christian can be quite high at sometimes. Some parts of the world, it can cost you your life. Here in America, it is not necessarily as dangerous. Nevertheless, if you become a Christian, God will take it very seriously. He will work in your heart and in your life to change you and make you more like Him. Sometimes this is an easy journey. Other times it can be difficult. It's been difficult for me. But this is what it means to become a Christian, to have God work in your life and continue to work in your life after you have been saved. Um, receive Christ. If you desire to receive Christ, we offer the following prayer as an example. It is not a formula, but it is a representation of what it means to trust in Christ. Lord Jesus, I come to you and confess that I am a sinner, that I have lied, though thought evil in my heart and broke your law. Please forgive me of my sins. Amen. Trust, I trust in what you have done on the cross. Amen. I receive you. Amen. I believe that you have died on the cross. Amen. Was buried and rose from the dead from, for my sins. Amen. Please cleanse, cleanse, cleanse me of my sins and be the Lord of my life. Amen. I trust you completely for the forgiveness of my sins and put not trust in my own efforts of righteousness. Amen. Lord Jesus, please save me as I receive you and believe what you did on the cross is the only way to be saved from the righteous judgment of God the Father. Amen. If you have prayed the prayer truthfully and faithfully, then you have obeyed Christ and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15 You have done so because God has granted that you come to Christ. John 6.65 Worked uh, worked belief in you. John 6.29 And granted that you believe. Uh, uh, Philippians 1.29 Now tell others about the, your commitment to Jesus. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Uh, for, this is here, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And also, then says, For the heart of man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth confesses, resulting in salvation. Okay. Now, the law and the gospel. The law is the do's and don'ts of the moral behavior. God gave the law so that people would have a guide to live by and standards by which they 
might recognize God's purity and their sinfulness. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. They oversee moral, judicial, and religious behavior. The law is a reflection of the character of God because the law comes forth from the very heart of God. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Matthew 12:34. When God gave the law, he was speaking out of the abundance of his heart. He was speaking from what he was what was in him. Therefore, the law is good, pure, right, and holy. It is wrong to lie because it is against God's nature to lie. It is wrong to steal because it is against God's nature to steal. This law then, by its very nature, of coming out of the heart of God and being spoken to man, is a standard for human conduct, a perfect standard. Because it was perfect and we are not, it is impossible for sinful people to keep it was for this reason that the law became a stumbling block. It became an obstacle to men, to man, because it is an unattainable perfect standard. The law, then, brings about the opposite of what is required. The law says to be perfect, but shows you where you are not. It says to be holy, but condemns you when you are not. Since it is not possible for us to keep the law and therefore earn our position with God, we then need the holiness of God given to us. Because there simply isn't any way for us to attain the standard of God, therefore the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Galatians uh, 3.24 That is the law shows us that we cannot get to God but by what we do. We need the grace of God in Christ Jesus manifest in his sacrifice. One, law reveals our sinfulness. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Romans uh, 3.20 uh, What shall we say then? Is it the law? Is is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, "Do not covenant." Romans seven seven. The law is for those who are not under grace. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Romans 3.19, excuse me. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under, the, under grace. Romans 6.14. Law justified no one. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in insight by observing the law. Romans 3.20. Law makes no concessions. It makes demands. Uh, cursed is every man who does not abide by every written, everything written in the book of the law to perform them. Galatians 3.10. Law, the law is spiritual. It was works of, on the spirit, not, in, not on the body. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Romans 7.14. Thou shalt not apply uh, uh, applies to the heart and not the body. 
We are made righteous in God's eyes by grace apart from the law of God. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law, Romans 3.28. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, um, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because the observing the law, no one will be justified, Galatians 2.16. The law bringeth judgment, because the law bringeth wrath. Uh, Romans 4.15, the law prepares us for the gospel. The law shows us that the free gift of the gospel is the only way to attain righteousness. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3.24, being saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8 is only found in Christian religion. Only Christianity has the message of free and under grace. The law is for the ungodly. But we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners and the unholy and the profane, and for those who kill their fathers and mothers and murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the gospel, glorious gospel of the blessed, of the blessed God. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8-11. through The law differs from the gospel in the matter of revelation. The law is revealed in the heart of men. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are the law to themselves, and that they show the works of the law written in their hearts. Romans 2, 14-15. It would be impossible to convert anyone if the law had been written in their hearts because the law reveals sin. Romans 2, 3, 20. The gospel is by direct revelation. It is not written in the heart. Now, brothers, I want to remind you the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Contents. The law tells people, tells what people are to do, our works. It makes demands. This is Deuteronomy 27.26 that he points out to. The gospel reveals that what God is doing, God's work, therefore it makes no demand on us except faith, Romans 6.23. The law is the list of do's and don'ts, Exodus 20. The gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus for sins, 1 Corinthians 15.1-4. It contains, it contains grace and truth. In John 1, 17, because the gospel is about Jesus. Promises. The law and the gospel both promise eternal life. The law, by complete obedience to all its commandments, as uh, Leviticus 18, 5, Luke 10, 26. The gospel, by grace unconditional. 
Romans uh, 3, 22 through 24, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It demands nothing, makes no threats. It removes from sinners the desire to sin. Effects of preaching the law. It tells us what to do, but does not enable us to do it. This can frustrate us because we cannot keep it. Nay, that of truth. Uh, reveals to man his sin and offers no help to get him out. It hurls man into despair, and that's the truth. I would not have come to know the sin except by the law, or through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said ye should not covenant. Romans 7, 7. Uh, it brings to our awareness damnation, hell, and hopelessness. That's the truth. But your uh, inadequacies and inadequacy and <laughs> but your inadequate excuse me, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden your his face from you, so that he will not hear. Isaiah fifty nine two. Christians redeem Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. Galatians three thirteen. Effects of preaching the gospel. It demands faith and gives us gives it to us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. It does not reprove the sinner. Therefore there uh, is now now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans eight one. It does not require anything good for man to do either in the heart, mind, and body because it is a free gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 Who the law and the gospel are preached to? The law is preached to sinners, those secured in their sin. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, recognizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers, mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers, whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. First Timothy 1 verses 8 through 10. The gospel is preached to those who are alarmed, frightened, smitten by the law, to those who are made thirsty for the gospel message. Through the law, we become conscious of sin, Romans 3.20. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24. All right, covenant. A covenant is a contract or agreement between two or more parties. Covenant is how God has chosen to communicate to us, to redeem us, and to guarantee us eternal life in Jesus. These truths revealed in the Bible are the basis of Christianity. The Bible is a covenant document. The Old and New Testaments are really Old and New Covenants. The word testament is Latin for covenant. There is a pattern to the covenants found in the Bible. Basically, it is as follows. 
if the initiating party describes himself from what he has done, then there is a list of obligations between the two or more parties. What follows is a section dealing with rewards and punishments that govern the keeping and breaking of the covenant. The Ten Commandments fit this pattern and are a covenant document. Covenant is how God first decided to deal with mankind. We know this from studying the eternal covenant mentioned in Hebrews 13.20. May God of peace, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, uh, the great shepherd of the sheep. And of course, it's NIV. And if you look at the King James, it says basically the same thing. In this covenant, God the Father uh, and the Son made an agreement regarding the elect. This covenant was made before the universe was created and consisted and it consisted of the Father's promising to bring to the Son all whom the Father had given him. And this is John 6, 39, 17, 9, and 24. Uh, the, the Son would become man. Galatians, uh, Colossians uh, 2, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Become for a while long, lower than the angels, Hebrew 2, 7. Be found under the law, Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. The Son would die from the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2, and 1 Peter 2, 24. And the Father would rise the Son from the dead, Psalms 2. The eternal covenant then leads to the covenant of grace. Where the eternal covenant was made between the Father and the Son, the covenant of grace is between God and man. Uh, this latter covenant is where God promises to man eternal salvation based upon the sacrifices of Jesus on the cross. The manifestation of the covenant occurs in our world in a sequence of additional covenants that God made with individuals, Adam, Noah, Abraham, the Israelites in Mount Sinai, and believers in the new covenant in Jeremiah 30, 31, 30-37, etc. I present the view that there are two main covenants. However, there is a disagreement as to the number of covenants. Some say there is really only one, the eternal covenant, with all others falling under it. Some say two, some say three, others four, etc. There really is no absolute answer. Understanding the covenant is important for several reasons. One, we learn that God deals with man covenantly. Since a two since a covenant is agreement, it is a promise made by God. Because we can re rely on God's word for eternity, we can take great comfort in his covenant, promising us eternal life in his son. Three, it helps us to see the Bible as a covenant document. All the New Testaments are all the new covenants. Four, with the covenant understood as a framework through which the Bible was written, we can better understand it, God's dealings with us through it, and our responsibility to God as well as to us. Five, we can better understand the symbols used by God in covenant ratification, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Covenant Analysis. Requirements and Promises for an Eternal Covenant. A, the Father requires 
required of the Son that he should atone for the sins of those whom the Father had given him. Uh, 1 John 2, 2, John 6, 39, 10, 11, and 15. And should do what Adam failed to do by keeping the law. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, 1 Peter 2, 22. Just to let everyone know that uh, when we're done with this study, then we're going to go to the narrowpath.com, which is, uh, you know, once again, Matt... Uh, Calvinist in his nature, and then we're going to go look at the other side, uh, Arminianism. Um, I'm not saying either one is necessarily right. Maybe there's a happy middle in all this. But regardless of the fact that what uh, stance you're on as far as Arminianism, Calvinism, once again, it's a non-essential, it's a secondary non-essential. I agree with Matt on that. Uh, it does not determine in a day your salvation one way or the other. It's just based on a a man's limited understanding of Scripture and um, is not a reason to listen to this man or condemn him. It's just an excuse that many people use not to to listen to each other. So So where were we? Okay, yeah. uh, These requirements include the following particulars that he should assume the human nature, now we're talking about Jesus, that he should place himself under the law, that he, after accomplishing forgiveness of sins, eternal life, should apply them to the elect. Uh, Relation and eternal covenant and covenant of grace, and the covenant of grace. The eternal covenant is a model for the covenant of grace. The former is eternal, that is, from eternity, and the latter is temporal in the sense that it is realized in time. The former is a compact between Father and the Son as a surety and heads head of the election, while the latter is a compact between the trine God and the elect sinner. If there had been no eternal covenant between God, Father and the Son, there could have been no covenant of grace between God and the sinful man. The Holy Spirit, which produces faith in the sinner, was promised uh, to Christ by the Father, and acceptance of the way of life through faith was guaranteed by Christ. The covenant with Adam, also known as the covenant of works, this was a covenant made between God and Adam, where Adam would have everlasting life based upon obedience to God. This apparently was possible since Adam did not have a sin nature. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, 16-17, God entered into a covenant with Adam. The promise connected to that covenant was life. The condition was perfect obedience. Its penalty was death. The covenant with Noah. The covenant was God's promise to Noah to never again destroy the world with a flood. God gave the rainbow as a sign. I know... I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. 
I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all the life be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign and a covenant that I make making between me and you and every living creature with you. I covenant for all generations come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all life. Whenever a rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. A covenant with Abraham. God promised a land and descendants to Abraham who was commanded to keep the covenant uh, and was given circumcision as a sign. On the day the Lord made the covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to Euphrates. In Genesis 15:18, Covenant with Moses. It was giving the law. The nation of Israel was um, in the giving of the law. The nation of Israel was constituted a holy nation and given stipulations to follow to ensure fellowship with God. The covenant was ratified by the covenant sacrifice and sprinkling of the blood. Exodus 24, verses 4 and 8. Exodus 24, 4 and 8. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he set up young Israelite men, and they offered bird offerings, sacrifices, young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in, a, in bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the Book of Covenants and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything that the Lord has said, and we will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is a blood covenant, uh, the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The covenant with David. God gave a promise to David that his descendants should have an everlasting kingdom and be known as his sons. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, and I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Psalms 89, 3-4. It was through the descendants of David that Jesus was born, the new covenants. This is the new covenant of the Mosaic age where the law of God would be written upon the hearts of men. The time is coming, declared the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declared the Lord. And I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 30 through Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 33. It was promised in Eden, I will put my put enmity between you and the woman, between offspring and herds, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
Genesis 3.15. It was proclaimed to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you, and all the people of earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12.3. It has fulfilled in Christ. Praise be the Lord, the Lord of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy to the, our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of the, our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my children, will be called a prophet, excuse me, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, but which is the rising sun will come to us from the heavens to shine on those living in darkness and, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the path of peace. Luke 1, 68-79, Covenant of Grace. This may be defined as the gracious, the gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending sinner in which God promised salvation through faith in Christ, and the sinner accepts this by faith, promising a life of faith and obedience. John 1, 12-13, John 3, 16, Romans 10, Verses 9 and 10. Comparison of the covenant of works, the Adamic covenant and the covenant of grace. Covenant of works and covenant of grace. God is the creator and Lord, established because he loves, because of his love and benevolence. Then um, the covenant of grace, God is the redeemer and father, established because of his mercy. Covenant of works. Man appears simply as God's creature, rightly related to God. Covenant of grace. Man appears, man appears as a sinner who has perverted his ways and can only appear in union with Christ in grace and grace. Uh, covenant of works, no mediator. Covenant of grace, Jesus is the mediator. Covenant of works. Righteousness is based upon obedience of a changeable man, which is uncertain. Covenant of grace is based on obedience of Christ as a mediator with an absolute which is absolute and certain. Covenant of works, the way of life is by keeping the law. Covenant of grace, the way of life is by faith in Jesus Christ. Covenant of works. A covenant is partly known in nature since the law of God is written in the hearts of man. Covenant of grace, the covenant is known exclusively through special revelation of the Bible. Just as the covenant of works, so the covenant of grace of God is the first of the contracting parties. He takes the initiative and determines the relation in which the second party will stand to him. It is not easily determined who the second party is, but in general, it may be said that God naturally established the covenant of grace with fallen man. The idea that the covenant is fully realized only in the elect is a perfect scriptural idea 
and appears, for instance, in Jeremiah 31, 21 through 34. And I, you know, the thing about the elect thing, I'm still debating about that. I don't know that uh, that uh, Calvinist thing. That, I don't know. It seems to, in a way, negate what Christ did. So, but um, to each their own. Once again, it's a, a secondary, non-essential. It also is entirely in line with the relationship of the covenant of grace stands the eternal covenant. And once again, this guy, you remember, he's, he does have that Calvinist bent to him, but that, once again, is a secondary, non-essential for salvation. And Calvinism, I personally find, at this stage of my growth and development, is a little too harsh. But that doesn't mean that they don't have some truth in what they're saying. Any more than Arminianism, and uh, they didn't have truth. Um, it's one of those not once again secondary non-essentials anyways I think that's pretty cool this time I made up the difference for the uh, part 4 I don't know if anybody will ever listen to someone after they screw up I made but I apologize once again for the audio problems part 4 and hopefully this one's much better and uh, I'm on a roll here folks I'm burning to do this stuff. I really do want to do this stuff and have a basic knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and the gospel. I really wanted it to be ingrained into me. It's, uh, it's, uh, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to have that uh, defense from the deception out there of somehow works. I can you know do something about anything about my salvation. And uh, yeah, so and I imagine I made a few people mad. It sounds like a few people are getting annoyed at me because I'm doing this. But what am I supposed to do? Do I serve man or does it serve God? Do I go out of my way to try to please everybody else? Or do I uh, serve God with the hope that it pleases him? Of course, it's it's dung, but, you know, it's... Um, but, you know, what can you do about it? So, all I can do is just do. You know? Um, let's see what's going on here. Huh. Looks like somebody had a baby. Let's see what's going on here. Maybe there's... Yeah, I read that one already. That's cool. Okay. Um, well, that's the end for this show.
it's just certainly this whole thing demonstrates one thing how small my life is right now. But uh, what does a man do in my position but do what I'm doing? So, God bless. Take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.